Okay, still works. Don't mind me, I'm just kind of reminiscing here. Used to play this with the girls. We could just sit for a long time playing. But we do want to get in our minds Jesus as our magnet. Jesus as a magnet for the world. John 12, 32. The Lord says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw, I will draw all men unto me. The Bible speaks of Jesus being lifted up. It also speaks of Jesus in other ways. For example, in 1 Timothy uh, 3 and 16, Paul says Jesus was taken up. He was taken up. And that refers uh, naturally to his ascension up on high. In Acts 2 and 32, Peter says in his sermon that God raised up Jesus. And he says, and we are all witnesses of this, event, of this event. But before Jesus was raised up, and before Jesus was taken up, uh, the Lord spoke of being lifted up. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, he says, I will draw all men unto me. And so let's follow this out uh, together as we focus on Jesus being our magnet, our magnet. And let's begin with this observation. And that is, Jesus was lifted up in death. Jesus was lifted up in death. If you're right there in John 12, 32, and you look to verse 33, there's a comment there. It says, he said this in reference to the kind of death that was ahead of him. Okay. Jesus talked about being lifted up. He's talking about uh, himself going to the cross. His death. Okay. And so it's important for us to dwell upon Jesus' death for just a minute or two. Okay. There are three important ideas about Jesus' death. Number one, the necessity of his death. The necessity of it. Jesus speaks also of being lifted up in John 3, 14 and 15. He said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He must be lifted up. Right here in John 12, I believe it's about verse 24, Jesus leading up to this phrase about being lifted up, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it cannot bear much fruit. It cannot bear fruit at all. And Jesus is making that application right to himself. Him being the seed. Him being the, the grain of wheat. Unless it falls into the earth and dies, it cannot bear fruit. So Jesus is predicting the necessity of his death. Now, we see this because he's in the prime of his life. And he's got a lot going for him. 
He's got a real good family. He has a lot of ability. He is uh, well known in his community. He's already doing a lot of good works. He's surrounded with a lot of good people. Why would he, in the prime of his life, about 30 years old or so, why would he be talking about being lifted up, about dying? Well, that's because he must die. He must die. Matthew 16, uh, 21, he references this. He says, I, the Son of Man, in just a few days, has got to go to Jerusalem. And there he must suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the, and the Pharisees. And then, and then be crucified there, be killed, and after that, on the third day, be raised again. But he, he uses the word must there. He uses it in John 3, 14 and 15. I must be lifted up. And he uses it there, Matthew 16, 21. He must suffer, he must die, he must be raised again. Usually, when we think of death, we, we get around to the point that, yes, because I'm a sinner, I deserve to suffer death. But Jesus had no sin. Hebrews 4, verse 15. He had no sin. 1 Peter 2, 22. He, he did no sin. Neither was guile ever found in his mouth. And yet, he speaks of dying because it was a necessity for the hope of the world. An absolute necessity for us uh, to have forgiveness of sins. So he speaks of the necessity of his death. But also, another important ideal in reference to Jesus' death is the manner of his death. The manner of how it came come to be. Now, if we were writing the story and we were trying to project our hero, we might have our hero not even dying. Maybe we would have him like Elijah, just just ascending up on high in a triumphant way. Or perhaps we'd have our hero dying in a glorious way on the battlefield. Or if we're writing the story, we'd have our hero just dying peaceably uh, in his sleep. But God had another thing in mind. He would have his son to die a humiliating death. An excruciating, painful, and shameful death. In order first to highlight the tragedy of what sin is. Even one sin is a tremendous offense to God. And then also to highlight our utter dependence upon the Lord. And so Jesus speaks of the necessity of him dying, and then also the manner uh, in which he would die. Now, speaking about the manner in which he would die, the Jews had about four ways in which they would execute uh, a criminal that they felt was deserving of dying. They would, uh, it would come by stoning, or by burning, or by beheading, or by hanging. Usually about four ways the Jews would execute uh, somebody. In John 10, 31, we read how that they picked up stones to throw at Jesus to try to uh, end his life at that moment, but Jesus was able uh, to escape. His hour has not yet come then. Okay. But now none of these types of death would fit the Messiah's death, the Christ. And his death, it wouldn't fit it, see. In the Messiah's death, there would need to be the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9, 22 
says that without the shedding of blood, there can never be any remission of sins. In his death, Jesus would need to shed his blood. Even with a stoning, he wouldn't guarantee it. With a stoning, with a burning, with a hanging, hanging. Okay, you wouldn't guarantee a lot of blood in any of those uh, events. Even a stoning uh, might bring some blood, but also a person could die uh, with the first blow from a stone. Okay. No, God had in mind a, a death that would be and involve the shedding of a lot of blood, and crucifixion uh, handled that uh, very well. And also remember that in the Messiah's death, not a bone would be broken. You see, Exodus twelve forty six, in the Passover lamb, picture of Jesus not having a bone broken. Also Psalm 34, verse 20 makes reference to that. And then over in John 19, when, when we're reading about the actual uh, death of Jesus, they came to Jesus and they saw that he was dead already, so they did not break his bones. And that fulfilled uh, that scripture. In a beheading or in a hanging, then of course bones uh, would be broken. And so Jesus makes the important point here of the manner of his death. It's important for us to, to focus and think about that. And then one other thought about Jesus being lifted up in death, and that is to concentrate on the purpose of his death. The purpose of his death. Of course, ultimately, the purpose of Jesus' death is to bring purity to our souls. We are sinners. We need purity of our souls. When Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper, we read about in Matthew 26, he, he said, as he took the cup, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But let's go a little deeper than that. Think, think about the word place. Think about the word place. Okay. Jesus died in our place. In our place. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says, Jesus died for our sins. That's part of the, that's the core of the gospel. He died for our sins. Galatians 1, 4 uh, says that Jesus gave himself up for our sins. For our sins. Uh, that he might deliver us out of this present uh, evil world. John 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. For his friends. Jesus died in our place. 1 John 3, in verse 16, John writes, By this we know love, because... He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life uh, for the brethren. Now, as we were observing the communion this morning, Mark uh, brought before us the idea of, of Abraham uh, obeying God and taking uh, Isaac to Mount Moriah to offer Isaac there as a, as a burnt offering. And, and God stayed his hand from doing that, and behind Abraham was caught a ram by his horns in the thicket. And so Abraham took that ram and offered it. Now notice this. He offered it in the stead of Isaac. Okay. In the stead of, in the place of Isaac. And so that ram pictures, foreshadows, 
uh, the coming of Jesus who will be offered in our place uh, as well. In Matthew chapter 2 and 22, you remember Herod who brought so much trouble to the land of Judea because he was seeking the life of Christ and he caused Joseph and Mary and the little child Jesus to have to flee to Egypt. But in Matthew 2.22 it says that Herod died and Archelaus, his son, reigned in his stead or in his place. And that's the exact phrase when we read about Jesus dying for our sins. That's the exact phrase that is used there. He died in the place, in our place. In our place. Running back to Genesis 44, you remember Joseph and and his brothers coming to Egypt to see him. And Joseph, you know, he wasn't sure. These are, the, these are the guys who sold him into slavery. These are the guys that just soon see him dead. So he, he does some testing there. And so the brothers have now finally brought Benjamin there with them. And Joseph does this little test. Uh, he says, okay, uh, I'm going to pack all your sacks with some goodies and food and other supplies and, and send you back home. And so they took off the... Joseph had secretly had his own silver cup placed in Benjamin's sack. And then he had his men overtake his brothers and and search them and found that silver cup in Benjamin's sack. The brothers were so distressed that they all had to come back to Joseph. And Joseph said, okay, whose sack was my silver cup found in? And and they said, well, Benjamin. Okay, he says, okay. The rest of you go back home to your father. I'm keeping Benjamin here with me. Genesis 44, 33. Judah steps forward and says, Let your servant, talking about himself, Judah, let your servant stay here instead of my brother. Don't bring this grief to my father. We go back home without Benjamin. It will double and triple his grief. Now Joseph, by giving that test, could see there's been a tremendous change in the heart of Judah. Judah stepped forward. There's been a great change in Judah. To take the place of his brother if need be. It wasn't long after that that Joseph would reveal himself to his brother. We remember that when it came down to the trial of Jesus, came down to the crucifixion of Jesus, there was standing before the crowd, Jesus or Barabbas? And the people yelled out, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Okay. So in a sense, Jesus took the place. Barabbas is the one that deserved to die. Deserved to die. He was insurrectionist. He was a murderer. Okay. There was a lot of evidence on him. Barabbas deserved to be crucified. But they chose Barabbas to be released and Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus took the place of Barabbas in a sense. Barabbas stands for all of us and all of our crimes. The purpose of Jesus' death was to take our place, but also the purpose was penalty, a punishment, penalty, punishment. The whipping that Jesus got. The shame that Jesus got. The mocking that Jesus got. The emotional turmoil turmoil that he went through. The suffering that he endured. 
the death that he endured, was due us. But Jesus took that on himself for us. And referring back to Isaiah 53, verse 5, you remember the words there, great prophecy of Jesus, Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. Isn't that the truth? And the Lord, notice it, Isaiah 53 and verse 6, and the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. He took our place, but He also took our penalty. He took our punishment, if you will, which was meant for us, or at least due us. Okay? And then there's payment. Jesus took our place, He took our punishment, and He, he made amends. You see, the word ransom is used often. Jesus uses it referring to Himself. Matthew 20 and verse 28 the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. A, a ransom is the price paid for the release of a slave. We are all slaves in the sense that we're sinners, John 8 and 34. But when we come to Jesus in submission and obedience, Romans six seventeen then we are made free from sin. We were the servants of sin, Romans 6, 17. But having obeyed Him, we become free from sin. And we become the servants of righteousness. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Potentially for anyone who would, who would want to come to Him. Ransom. So, the devil loves, the devil is the accuser. He loves to accuse us. He's got something against us. He comes before God. He says, this Barker boy, this Barker boy, he's a sinner. And God looks at his records. He says, well, devil, my son took his place. My son took his punishment. My son offered himself as payment, as a ransom. And Barker here has come and submitted himself to my son. Therefore, the blood of my son has been applied to his soul. So Satan, you have nothing on him. And Satan has to go his way. You see, Jesus was lifted up in death. In death. And that's why we're drawn to Him. In the second place this evening, Jesus was lifted up in history. In history. Because going back to John 3, 14 and 15, it's exactly what Jesus said. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now this is Jesus, of course, referencing 
the time of Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness, Numbers chapter 21, they are traveling from Egypt to the land of Canaan. They hit a rough spot here, Numbers 21. And the people begin to complain, saying there's no food out here, there's no water, and we are tired of this light bread. We're tired of this bread. And God was tired of their complaining. So he sent fiery serpents in among the people, and the serpents began to bite people, and people died, and people got sick. And the people come to Moses and say, go to the Lord and pray for us. And Moses did as he always did. He went on behalf of the people, and God said, Moses, fashion yourself a brass serpent and put him on a pole. And everyone who looks in faith to that pole will be healed of their snake bites. And that's exactly what happened. So Jesus is the one lifted up in history here because he takes this occasion, John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And we know he means lifted up on the cross. You see, those were fiery snakes way over there in the wilderness time. But go back further all the way back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, and there was another serpent, right? Another serpent. The main serpent came on the scene. And he seduces Eve to sin, Adam, and really all of us. 1 John five nineteen says we all are under the spell, in a sense, of that wicked one. The whole world lies under the wicked one, the devil. And so that serpent has bitten, starting with Eve, Adam, and all of us, he has bitten, he has brought the poison of sin into our lives. How can we be healed of this snake bite? Well, like in the wilderness, so even today, we are to look upon that pole, we are to look to the cross, And we'll be healed. I make reference quickly right back to Isaiah 53 verse 5. Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And notice this. And with his stripes we are what? We are healed. We are healed. Healed from this poison of the serpent. The ultimate serpent. So how is it that we look on the pole today? How do we look at the cross? Well, Jesus answers that right there in John 3 and verse 15. He says it's, all, it's by faith. I want to talk about this faith for a half a minute. Okay. First, of course, this is an obedient faith. When the Bible speaks of faith, it talks about a faith with works. Okay. John 2, I should say. James 2, 17 says, Faith without works is dead being by itself. If you look right here in John 3, it's just wonderful, wonderful how the Bible just opens up itself. John 3, translated correctly in, John, in the English Standard Version, John 3, 36. Let's uh, see, notice He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice how that verse teaches the kind of faith that God expects. If you believe, you're good. But if you don't obey, then the wrath of God remains on you. That simply means that faith must be one that obeys the will of the Lord. Okay. Another thing about this faith that Jesus mentions here, and this is how you look on the pole of the cross, is the faith must be in Him. Don't just jump over that. In Him. That phrase becomes very important in New Testament literature. It's very important. In Christ becomes something that, that, is, that represents one's close relationship with the Lord. For example, Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is in Christ, found in Christ. 2 Timothy 2 verse 10 says, Salvation is found in Christ. 1 John 5 verse 11 says, Spiritual life is found in Christ. So therefore we ask, well how do you get in Christ? In Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 says we're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of us as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. This makes perfect sense because if you're reading from John 3, beginning in verse 1, Jesus has this discussion with Nicodemus. And he gets down to saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, except you be born of water... And the Spirit, you can't go into, you can't be part of the kingdom of heaven. Don't, don't you see that this obedient faith, he mentions there in John 3.15, is practically equal to his teaching of the new birth uh, to Nicodemus. It makes sense, Jesus, is, the subject is still Jesus, Nicodemus, and then Jesus expanding on what had just happened with Nicodemus. It takes a lot of help to miss this kind of thing. Also there in John 3.15, notice it requires an obedient faith and a faith that is in Christ, but also it involves a trusting, a trusting faith, a, a faith that really does depend on the Lord. This is the part of the faith that sometimes we have the most trouble with, the trusting part. Why does God do these weird things? Okay. Weird from the human standpoint, the human eye. Okay. For example, he takes, um, he leads Joshua and the people to overtake Jericho, but how, how does he do it? From marching around the wall. Okay. From the human wisdom standpoint, okay, there's, nothing, there's no connection there. God has Gideon to trim the army down all the way down to 300 people. But the battle was theirs because they did as the Lord said to do. How is it that a young shepherd boy could go up against Goliath when none of the other armored warriors could do anything with Goliath? A little shepherd boy, without any armor, takes a few stones and a sling and is able to defeat Goliath. What is God doing in all these situations? He is letting us know that deliverance and forgiveness and healing does not come from us. 
It does not come from human wisdom. It is absolutely all on Him. He's bringing the deliverance as we follow Him. He is bringing the deliverance. And right there in the wilderness, who would have ever connected the healing of a snake bite by putting a fake snake on a pole and looking at that? Looking at that. Well, the reason God does these kinds of things is because He wants us to understand that the blessing is coming from His hand, not from our own. And so, what kind of connection would there ever be of bringing a spiritual revolution to the earth by having a man crucified in the prime of his life? To the human standpoint, from the human viewpoint, makes no sense. But by faith we walk. Because God is, we see what God is communicating to us. He's saying, this is coming from me, not from you. You must learn to trust me. Trust me. Totally trust me. Jesus, in Isaiah 53, and verse 1 and 2, is, is pictured as a root out of dry ground. A root out of dry ground doesn't have a lot of hope of making it. Okay? Root needs ground. It needs nurturing. It needs water. It needs nutrients. A root out of dry ground. That's how Jesus was brought up. It's as if God put every disadvantage against the Lord in order to show that the power of forgiveness is coming from Him and not from us at all, not from any human being, not from any group of human beings. Think about it. Jesus had no place to lay His head. He was from a poor family. His, his, His key men were mostly uneducated. He came from a despised place called Nazareth. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? People didn't think so. Okay. He died in the prime of his life. He came to earth and was born not in a palace, but in a stable. It's as if God was stacking everything against him in order to show us and keep showing us that indeed the battle belongs to him, and not to us. Jesus was lifted up in death. Jesus was lifted up in history. In history. And finally this evening, the question is, is Jesus lifted up in our hearts? He promised it would happen. Okay, so we made reference to Jesus being lifted up, first in John 12, 32, and then in John 3, 14 and 15. One other reference is John 8, 28. John 8, 28. And Jesus he looked to the Jews, and he was having these discussions back and forth. They couldn't understand what he was saying, that he was, he was from the Father, and he was from heaven, and, and they couldn't understand it at all. But Jesus looked to them finally in John eight twenty eight, and he said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I'm the One. That did, that did happen to a lot of the Jews, didn't it? After Jesus lifted up on the cross and after he was raised from the dead on the third day and after he ascended up on high, we have the day of Pentecost and many of the Jews believed and were baptized. We even read in Acts 6 and verse 7 that a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith and 
and we're baptized and receive forgiveness of sins. It was true. It was true what Jesus said. When I'm lifted up, after all this happens, as I am predicting, even some of you, even some of you will know, truly know that I am He. Isn't it interesting that, that Jesus' name is still the most recognizable name in all the earth, in all the history of the earth, still the most recognizable name ever since he came to this earth. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it true what Jesus said? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. He mentioned this word draw in John 6, 44 and 45 that you might want to reference because he said, the Father draws those who are taught, who learn of me, who learn of the Father. Okay. But we know that the, the principal part of that learning surrounds the, the death, and the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. And so our part comes not only being touched and inspired by Jesus and his death, but also in telling others and sharing with others this great news. This great news. If you look around, different groups use different ways to try to draw people to them. But folks, we will never find a more scriptural or better way of drawing people to heaven than by what we've been talking about this evening. There's nothing else. If we cannot be touched by the cross, then we simply cannot. Our heart is too hardened. Now, Jesus said leading up in John 12, except the seed, the grain of wheat, falls into the earth and dies, it cannot bear fruit. The same with us. Same with us. We're not going to die in the magnificent way of Jesus, but we follow him and we die. As we come to Jesus, we die to ourselves. We put pride away. As Jesus teaches us in Matthew 16, 24, we are to deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow him. We die to sin. That's a big part of repentance. Romans 6, verse 2. We die to sin. Die to ourselves, we die to sin. That's what it takes to get the teaching, the gospel, into the hearts of others. Jesus will say there in John 12, leading up to verse 32, He will say, whoever will try to find his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. He will find the true purpose of, of existence. He will, he will find what happiness is really all about. If you're involved in this process of drawing men to Jesus. Yes, Jesus draws men, but He uses us as well. We can't truly say that Jesus is lifted up in our hearts until we are involved in denying ourselves, dying to sin, sacrificing in our lives so that others can know the Lord as well. I just can't get away from that statement there in John 8, 28, where Jesus predicts 
When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. That's what we want for everybody. We want everybody who's walking around right now to know that Jesus is the one. He's the remedy. He's the healing. He is the one promised. He's the only way to the Father. He is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to happiness. He's the only way to hope. Jesus was lifted up in death, in history, and hopefully he's lifted up in our hearts as well. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation this evening, it is his invitation. It's his. He reaches out to each one of us. Can we assist anyone with their soul's salvation this evening? Please make that known right now as we stand together, as we sing.